Okay, so why don't you guys buckle up and join the ride because we are going to have some fun going green. And Abby said, you shouldn't commit illegal acts except perhaps at night and with your parents' permission. Your advice is making less sense than usual. Well, the important thing is family and friendship, honesty, values, and no one got arrested. You see this jerk? This is the same thing. Krapotkin was the same jerk, and Bakunin was the same jerk. Not good. Not good, I'm telling you. It was a, he was a very good dancer. This a low life. George Orwell, who definitely didn't like socialism of any kind, warned us against this. He wrote books that said that totalitarianism is bad and that sticking with old ideas is good. I got news for you. You gotcha. The yeah. Yale population again. I did not know that. I, I never thought you'd lose a Stalin debate. I, 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 you never expect to walk into one. Sure. Avoid Marxism. Or telling her you're a Trotskyite. Trotskyist. Only Stalinists would call the Trotskyist a Trotskyite. And I'm not a Trotskyist anymore. I'm a Maoist. Relentlessly anti-Trump and relentlessly pro somebody like Obama. I'm not pro-Obama. I've been a critic of Obama. I'm a critic of the Democratic Party. Because I'm literally a communist. You know how it is. The main thing is to get those juicy likes and subscribes, and we can get some more of that sweet, sweet communist money rolling in. You know how it is, bro. You gotta get that communist dollar, gotta make it to the top. Just imagine somebody saying under cannibalism or under slavery or under dictatorship. Well, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, they'd be wrong. There is something you can do about it. You can get beyond these archaic systems and move closer and closer to fulfilling human capacities. And that's what we need to do. Welcome to the Three Lefts Show. I'm your host, Stan Platt. This is the Three Lefts. We already assume you hate capitalism. Anyway, uh, this is another special episode where I'm going to do audio clips. Once a year, the Green Party meets to do a national meeting. Obviously, for the last year and a half, it's been over Zoom. I just listened uh, to a Zero Books, you know, podcast, and where they were kind of talking about the end of the end of history. And one point that was made by the writer there was that the last decade has kind of been one of populism, whether it be right-wing in the form of Trump or left-wing in the form of Bernie Sanders and all of the energy around that and any DSA Democratic Party candidates. But the pandemic has, for the most part, uh, beaten this wave of populism much as throughout history, populism usually doesn't succeed, usually for lack of a material base and organization. This is why, despite the way of looking at independent politics as being for losers or can never win, I find it to be my political home because at least I know who I am and what we're doing and that we're not going to hit a dead end like most populism does. That at least we are trying to build a base and trying to have an organization that can fight for our goals, solve general social problems, have clear demands. So it's in this context that I present the National Green Party Annual Meeting. I'm just going to quickly explain. Um, I've cut them cut down uh, various workshops or lectures down to half hour each, uh, but they are full videos found at Green Party Video's YouTube cha uh, channel. Um, they're about at least an hour long. 
anyway, I've cut them down a half an hour to kind of the bits that I found most important, but please listen to all of it if you found what you hear interesting. The first was the keynote speaker, a key from Co-op Jackson, which is kind of communalism in practice, uh, covered in previous episodes. This is, uh, I actually took the Q&A that comes after his lecture, which is kind of just setting up the terms and the situation for our politics. So the next one is then women, I chose women running for office, which was just kind of a go-round workshop, but uh, also someone kind of talked about her experience and uh, and whatnot. So there were good points later on in the Q&A. It was kind of more of a open, informal discussion. Uh, The clip I have focuses on the talk. And then the second half of the show, you'll hear clips on monetary policy, basically the Green Party's monetary policy, uh, ways of thinking about money, uh, and that's from like our kind of monetary policy working group. Then last is a talk on open source voting. He kind of takes to task or dispute some of the other kind of election reforms that are proposed and worked on, even in campaigning, uh, including ranked choice ballots. And he also talks about his experience in dealing with our election system, which I think is quite illuminating. So hope you enjoy. Obviously, this isn't everything that the Green Party is about or what is happening, but it's a good snapshot as this is us talking to each other, which is always more uh, honest and illuminating than whatever kind of PR or online discourse that there usually is. Uh, so I'll uh, let it all speak for itself. I'm with the show. And then the last thing, you know, just in terms of David, yeah, that, um, you know, there are some tools I would like to highlight, like the NETS uh, Systems Project has some tools, I think, that that are kind of centered around what municipalities can do to help kind of advance this kind of transition that we need. I think there are a lot of things that, that can be done, but I would tell you from our experience in Jackson that don't think that the local fights won't be just as hard uh, and heavy as the national or international fights. They will be. And to get yourself prepared for that. You know, because we come from an experience where I think we, you know, we had organized enough folks, convinced enough people to vote some of our comrades into office. Uh, but then we ran into some of the same pieces around being able to hold them accountable and hold them true to the mission. So there's there's systems within systems that we have to develop in order to see these things through. That's one of the clear lessons that we've been learning from our uh, experience in Jackson over the past eight years. Uh, and that's and it's an ongoing process, but I think the you know some of this piece aims in the direction of where we want to go uh, to transform ownership of the means of production from the bottom up, uh, and to try to make as much as possible you know put it in kind of a public domain or a commons domain. And those are not the exact same thing, but they are interrelated, and it's where we need to be pushing for in our view. Thank you, Kali. Uh, we've got a couple questions that came in from the chat, and then I also see we have a attendee with a Zoom hand up. So one question from the chat, paraphrasing a bit, for for people who came into the Green Party uh, in, in earlier waves of its development and uh, came into the Green Party 
um, before the um, the current rise in the prominence of, of democratic socialism and socialism in general and eco-socialism, for folks who came into their Green Party work and their, their uh, eco-activism uh, not really relating to socialism, what's your argument for why eco-socialism is the is the version of ecological wisdom that the Green Party should be embracing and, and forwarding now? Uh, so that's one question. And then I'm going to go to uh, Nikhil Ananda in Hawaii. Uh, you are now unmuted. If you can ask your, your question to Kali. Oh, thank you, Michael. Brilliant presentation, Kali. I'd like uh, some concrete suggestions in collaborating with elected Democrats, uh, elected progressive Democrats, who may not accept the entire Green Party universe, yet are natural allies on numerous, many issues. The example you gave was your comments about uh, relating to agriculture and farmers. We as Greens tend to condemn all Democrats as, Democrats as evil. And I see in Maui and Hawaii, too many people that are natural Greens have chosen to be Democrats. And we've had two Greens who ran, changed parties to Democrats and got elected. And they were able to do things inside as elected officials. So uh, thank you, Kali, for your brilliant analysis. Mahalo. Okay, thank you, Nikhil Ananda. And uh, another question we had coming from the chat. Uh, Nate asks, uh, what you think about how we can make policy changes along the way to having our ideal proportions of office holding greens? So maybe some overlap between that and Nikhil Ananda's question in terms of um, as we get greens in office, uh, what can we do? And then also uh, working with uh, progressives or people who have some overlap in values who are in office, who are not of the Green Party. Um, so between those three questions, would you like to take those, Kali, or do you want me to take a few more? Sure. Okay, no, no, great. That, Go for it. Those are some hard nuts to crack. So, so this, uh, um, and where, where I think at different points in time, when we've had a lot of barriers and a lot of disagreement. Uh, let me start with the, the kind of why eco-socialism now right, um, piece, because I think it will lead into the other ones. You know, let's go back, because part of the piece was about those who came in at an earlier period of time, when some of the language and some of the concepts, you know, uh, may not have been in vogue. I would challenge and push back on that, actually. You know, like in uh, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, if you recall, I mean, there was a new left movement you know, that had some strength, particularly in the 60s and early 70s, uh, that wasn't shying away from uh, a variant of uh, socialism. I was, you know, my parents were part of that. I think I grew up in the tail end of, of that and see myself as a product of that time and that period. Um, so it wasn't like those discussions and those debates weren't present in and around the Green Party. Uh, what unfortunately i think emerged was folks wind up phrasing a lot of what they were were hoping to construct the future and the vision that they wanted to construct outside of of the narrow paradigm that it got to set up in this contest between the soviet union and and the united states in particular 
And one of the things that the United States did an excellent job of, and it's not like the Soviets kind of helped him out in his, in, in his vein, was, you know, they defined what was going on in the Soviet Union, the two of them, as being socialism. And folks who, who didn't want to follow that particular model oftentimes were stuck in a rut of, you know, I, I want the common ownership, you know, of a promise by the socialist ideal. I want the equality. I want the broad democracy promised by the kind of socialist ideal, but I don't want to be associated with that. And that language in the, both the, the, the political baggage that came with it, and let's be honest, the persecution that came with it from the United States, because we got to remember 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and well until now, you know, anything in, in this country kind of labeled socialism or socialists or communists, whatever, or anarchists, you know, that's bad. It's like the, you know, you don't want to touch that. You don't want to be associated. Most folks don't. Uh, and the Green Party emerged in a period where that was the dominant strand of trying to create an alternative that didn't fit in that paradigm, right, was trying to move outside of it and was constantly trying to find ways to to speak about those principles and those values and ideas without being trapped or ensnared in that. And I think, you know, in all honesty, that that put uh, the green in, in some binds. It, in, in the early phases, it closed it off from a number of different communities. It closed it off from a lot of, I, I can tell you directly, because I was there and part of it, you know, so, uh, a lot of black radical communities, you know, uh, uh, folks who should have been natural allies, uh, who were always kind of looking for, you know, to, to build and construct some kind of third party narrative that has always been been there. Uh, and, uh, you know, much of like the black radical left or the Chicano, Chicana radical left, like these are forces who came out of primarily what we would call national informed, meaning that organizations that were primarily Chicano or primarily black or sometimes exclusively black, but they had adopted uh, aspects, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, letter to letter of kind of a Marxist framework or particularly a Marxist-Leninist framework or some variant of that. Uh, but we're always trying to find very concrete and practical ways, you know, to empower their communities and transform the society, which often led them, you know, particularly by like the 1980s, it led a number of different uh, forces into supporting the Jesse Jackson campaign. Jesse just filled a vacuum. Let's be clear in our historical analysis. He just filled a vacuum uh, um, and he did that twice. And then when something really independent looked like it could emerge in kind of the rainbow party emerging out of rainbow coalition, that's when he made his dead end deal with the Democrats. You know, like this, you know, my parents were, now I was a youth, was by that time a teenager in for around the 88. Uh, and we had some hardcore debates. You know, I grew up primarily in, in Los Angeles not exclusively, but we had some hardcore debates uh, around to what extent should uh, people be involved in anything having to do with the Democratic Party. Uh, and my folks were, were folks who, who um, tried to support some of the programs that were being appropriated uh, by Jesse and folks, many of which they helped start or, or, or relate to, uh, under this kind of notion that we could flip some of those those new forces that were engaged, flip them into independent kind of autonomous activity and steer them away from the Democrats. I know that was my parents' kind of a thought orientation on why they engaged at all. Um, you know, and, and, and truth be told, 
it didn't work. You know, at least not in my view. Um, you know, because most folks came with an expectation that they were building something that was going to lead or or in the way that that was framed, it was going to lead to transformation primarily from within the system through elected officials. And I think the emphasis was wrong then and to a certain extent is wrong now. This is where I'm trying to connect them. Uh, we are going to build our strength with a more long-term, I argue, long-term and strategic view of building our base and building our power outside of the of the the um, the arena of just trying to elect offer you know people to office, right? And that it, it, there's deeper relations around building kind of practical projects that that express and envision and point the way forward, right? In the real and the concrete to the greatest extent possible. This is the, the vision of the new relations that are possible that we want to see that will enable us to live more fulfilled lives. Then we run it, once we have that, we know we're gonna confront material limitations, limitations with the law. Then it makes more sense, I would argue, to be able to put for folks from our base that emerge from our membership, emerge from these kind of education transformative projects that will be true to understanding I'm engaging in this process to try to affect society and law in this way, right? Uh, and without that orientation, I think we often, you know, what I would say like in Jackson, um, we put folks in office oftentimes who didn't have the concrete experience of trying to do that work on the ground and just understood it maybe, or said they understood it from an intellectual level or intellectual perspective. But once they're in office, you once you're in office, and I'm saying this from being, you know, I don't know if folks know this about me, but, you know, I, I helped put, uh, you know, Chokwe and Lumumba in office and some other people in office. Um, uh, who were running under, you know, uh, the auspices of some kind of alternative to the Democratic Party, but oftentimes, what what in truth, like what what was going on in Jackson, was you know the there's the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which kind of has its own entity and 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 basis of of life coming from the struggles of the 1960s, uh, growing out of you know primarily the efforts of SNCs, but not exclusively. Um, but it was a compromise wherein you know folks didn't want to stray too far from the Democratic Party and be excluded from I guess ballot lines was one of the arguments. Uh so that you know the the mass association with the D as people call it in in Mississippi would still be there and then didn't believe um that the work had been done deeply enough uh to get people to to consider uh, independent or green running. And I always argue that that was an incorrect view, and I still think it's an incorrect view. Uh, and it oftentimes, I think, speaks to the, the lack of imagination of our own forces than it does to the reality of where a lot of communities are at. But, you know, I could say that in the Jackson context because there was 20-something odd years or 30-something odd years of autonomous work that had already been developed and folks knew us to be a force outside of the Democratic Party. The work had been done. So it wasn't just saying like 
something speculative. It's like, no, folks know that we don't mess with the Democrats. They already know that they've been on that. Right. And so there's no need for us to recourse to do it. Um, now, in our case, I would say, unfortunately, many people just thought that, and if we put it plainly, people just, a lot of forces in our kind of broader coalition uh, didn't want to break with kind of the black petty bourgeois forces in town because that is who they were. Right. And that is what they were, how they were best situated. And so they wanted to be associated with radical kind of left ideas and positionality to a degree, but they didn't want to leave the comfort of home. Right. And so we needed to push them in a way that I think we 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 suffer for from not pushing them further away. And then some of our forces, truth be told, uh, were under this notion that it was more important to be in office than it was to change the, the parameters of how both the game is played and what the program was. And I would argue and articulate that we need to be going back. We need to be clear that in the long term, we have to have our own independent base. And that is built and has to be built by building programs and activities and campaigns that are not just limited to winning office. That needs to be like 10, 20 percent of what we do. The other 80 percent has to be involved in building these practical programs and building the base. And that's going to take time uh, uh, and a, a different type of concentrated energy, I think, to produce. Now, does that mean to kind of answer the Nicolando part of your question that we don't uh, uh, deal with the Democrats? No, I think that there are times and places where you, like in Jackson, uh, for instance, um, there's no way that we don't, we can't, we, uh, we can totally avoid the Democrats. Uh, not in our in our effort, but we make it known, particularly particularly us trying to target the young folks of, uh, in our community, that uh, that's not set in stone, and it's not like some you know uh, uh, religious edict that you have to be a Democrat or you have to do that. There's many choices and many options, and I think we're winning that battle, right? But what enables us to win it, and I think for us to be in a position to win it. Is that we also have the you know, the, the co-ops, we have the community land trust, we have the mutual aid work we're doing, you know, the relief work we're doing. So it's practical, it's concrete, it's tangible, and people see that our practices align with our political aims in this particular way, and that's what's winning the battle. And I think that is is you know being practical and concrete. That is what we're going to have to do, I think, all throughout this country. It won't look the same in every different, you know, in every community because conditions aren't the same, the communities aren't the same, the traditions aren't the same, but again, upholding those principles and that orientation is what I think we need to do with the long-term perspective of, of building the transformative force that we need. Question, um, how do we stand our ground when the Democrats and the corporate media tries to discredit us? And how do we hold Democrats accountable? I am gonna tag a question onto that and then we might need to wrap after that. So uh, Kali, the, the work that you described doing on the ground work, building that material base is inspiring and compelling. I kind of feel like the Green Party is like one of Darwin's finches on the Galapagos Islands. Like we have this beak that we've evolved towards like creating ballot lines, right? Petitioning, get on the ballot, running candidates. And, and that is through hard work, right? And years of struggle that we've developed that specific skill set. And we felt like that was something we could offer the left is like, well, we've got these ballot lines around. That's a 
a unique set of skills, as uh, Liam Neeson and Taken might say. And and so what would how would you advise state parties and, and green counties on the ground to to take on this um, this focus that you're expressing about being involved in, in material work, which many greens as individuals already are. But as an organization, the Green Party has not tri- consistently. Right, I'll, I'll just not yes, as, go for not it. Not as an organization. But, right. Yeah, no, no. It, it, so this, this is, I think, the trick, you know, in part that we have to figure out. Because, you know, uh, uh, some of the faces and names here I know. And it's good to see. And I know some of the work that people are involved in. But it's often involved in that not as greens, like you might be a green and show up there or be involved. But it's not something that's particularly generated by the party as a party project, right? Or allied or, or engaged in that way. It's kind of more individual engaged in the solidarity, different types of solidarity economy work or union organizing work. So it's kind of an adjunct. It's something that we do as individuals, but it's not something that we do as a party. We need to rearticulate that so we're coming with the full weight and the resources that's there. And it's going to re- require some transformation on, on the party's part to be clear about understanding what that means, but uh, I think it's a critical piece that has to get done, right? And and people just see, like you said, that particular set of uniqueness, you know, those unique skills that can be applied in other arenas, right? Because the the effort, energy, and the type of organizing of you know building the contact list, building contacts, building relations, doing the type of canvassing and door knocking. That is applied to almost any other thing that you want to do. You have to tweak it here or there, but the one-on-ones, the building relationships, it's just, it's just a rearticulation of the skill for another arena. So it's not like that has to be surrendered. It just has to be enhanced and, and articulated, I think, in some new areas. And the, the piece is, I'm not saying that to give up that work. It just shouldn't be the dominant thing I'm arguing you know, of, of what we do. But a long-term piece, and part of the reason why I'm arguing is, is that, look, you know, we, we know that um, state after state, county after county, some more so than others, some worse than others, uh, Greens qualify, and then they change the goalposts, and you got to do it all over again. Right? And right now we are in a period where, uh, you know, the right, uh, you know, they are, they are dug in, and they're well-positioned to execute transforming all, you know, at least 34 of the 50 states' laws and making some of that permanent that they're going to wind up winning. I mean, if, if Arizona and what just took place uh, was any precedent, and I think it is, you know, a lot of what is, is uh, 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 you know, the Republicans are pushing through around the voting laws, one of the courts already said what Arizona did is, is constitutional, it's legal. They can keep doing it. And so that's going to set a press of Georgia and, and, and uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas already, you know, uh, following suit, Florida, you know. Um, so how, given that these goalposts are going to be changed in ways where those uh, kind of bases or, th- or those precedents are not going to be kind of rearticulated, at least for like two or another two or three cycles, like there's going to have to be some work convincing uh, those who, who, who voted those Republicans in Right. In a lot of those states, and we're talking about particularly white working class communities and white middle class communities, you know, because in truth, it was more white middle class communities, the petty bourgeois communities 
that voted in Trump. White white working class voters get blamed for that, but that's actually not the real truth. Uh, but that's another conversation to have at another time. But um, we got to win those folks over. And you're not just going to win them over by, by you know, let's be real. We're not just going to win them over by coming and talking about the Green Party platform. We got to come in and try to figure out how do, how do we deliver better goods and services in this community where we know poor people of all colors and races are struggling in, in this economy under these new contexts. We got to come up with practical solutions there. Once that's done, then you have a broader audience. And that's, that's time and effort that's going to have to take to get that. And just focusing kind of in on the battle line experience is not going to get us there, comrades. I'm just, uh, you know, I think we need to be 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 real about that in face of what you're saying. That we're like, the Democrats' job is to crush us. Let's be clear about that. They don't want anything to the left of them existing at all. And they've never wanted it. You know, going back to, you know, the, the compromise of 1877, they've never wanted that. Um so uh, number one, I think we have to always be insulated with the fact that that is their job to 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 shit on us and to, to attack us, to anticipate that and, and, and kind of fortify ourselves mentally around that. But I think there are ways in which you can kind of use that as to your strength. Like, you know, uh, one of the arguments that we've been using, going back to an earlier point that I think highlights a practical thing that I think we, we kind of stumbled upon this, but... Um, you know, one of the things that we've been using described over the years to describe our program is that, that we are talking about, we are trying to, to uh, uh, practice and create economic democracy. Now the smart, you know, right-wing nut jobs, and there are a few of them in our areas who read and study seriously, they know exactly what we're talking about when we use that language. But the bind is whenever we've been in any public debate with them is, okay, you know, you say you're for, uh, democracy, how did democracy just, uh, uh, get limited from the economic arena? When and how did that happen? Right? And if you're about limiting uh, people's, you know, overall democratic choices, how could you be against economic democracy? And it's kind of put them in a bind, like, either you're for democracy or you're not. Which one? Right? And we know you guys are not really for democracy. It just hi- highlights when you bring these arguments up, it just highlights ways in which you're not with, by, by setting all these constraints and limitations. But I think it's this type of positionality in the type of arguments that we need to be using to win folks over, right? Which is not about some of the old, just purely kind of ideological debates, you know, like we were talking about, about like this, the Soviet Union or et cetera. You know, like we can go toe to toe with anybody about that. That's the history we all know and love. We don't shy away from it. But the practical thing when folks come up with us, like, you know, and we get we hear this a lot in 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 Jackson by by new forces that we encounter. You know, it's like, well, we heard you guys were socialists, and we heard you guys, and we're like, well, yeah, that we are that. But you know, but we're also about making sure people in this community are fed. Are you about that, or are you not about that? And then it just makes it practical. Well, I I'm I'm for people being fed, but I'm not for it in this particular way. Well, what particular way are you for? You know, because uh, are you for just perpetually providing charity to people like you you constantly giving things to people and making them dependent upon you are you trying to uh uh you know get into a place where people are able to provide these things for themselves and we're providing it you know collectively as a community those are debates almost nobody they can either walk away and just be mad or frustrated but they they aren't able to articulate that it's against either the christian principles that most of them have been uh, reared up and grown up with or the broader value around you know the, the the limitation of 
kind of the charity model, right? It, people quickly walk away and, and or either embrace it and say, "I see what you mean." So you know, but uh, uh, it's it's the creating a type of antagonism, very intentional, but one that's not about closing the, the the folks off in our community who may walk away because the. the for me, I know as an organizer, and this is because I exist in a scale that makes this possible. To be clear, you know Jackson's not that big, and you often you're gonna see somebody again anyway. So next time we come around, you know, engage them in, in a similar conversation. Like the mission of improving the quality of conditions still remains, whether you agree with me or not. So what can we do together that we can agree upon? Then it's a different discussion. I know where you stand. You know where I stand. Now let's figure out the collective solution to make this possible. That's the democratic practice, right? Which is beyond like the, the ideological debate that you were trying to have with me before. It's like, I still need to work with you to, to solve this problem. How are we gonna solve it? So I think that's the way in which we got to try to make all of this practical and win folks over to our vision, our view and our program. Sure, hi everyone. Um, I'm Hillary Kane. I am the party's national treasurer. I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, what interests me about electoral work? Um, I think because it's a time of the year that the people who are sort of not political um, actually pick their head up out of the sand and sort of pay attention for a few minutes. And it's a, to me a great way to sort of like try to nab a few people to get them to become you know, more active and more activist um, and to really, you know, wake people up. Um, and um, yeah, I don't want to go on because we'll take forever, but I have not run for office myself, but I have certainly supported many a campaign. I now seem to be typecast in the treasurer role, but I've done other things. And um, Jackie, would you mind going next? Hi, I'm Jackie Devino. I live up here in Portland, Maine. I have never run for office myself, but I've worked on, with the exception of the last presidential campaign, I've worked directly um, on every presidential campaign we have had. Uh, and within our state, all of our governor, green governor races and, and candidates that have run locally and statewide. So I'm a, kind of the backup crew for candidates and I'm always interested, especially in the women in this party uh, running because boy, do we have some strong women in this party. Amy, are you there? Yes, Amy Sachs, Portland, Oregon. So Pacific Green Party, uh, I guess mostly I pay attention to electoral work just out of force of habit because I've always voted even when it felt deeply depressing uh, I know locally one of my favorite Greens, uh, Natalie Paravicini, is probably going to run again this year, I believe, for Secretary of State. So I'm hoping when I have time that I can reach out to her and uh, maybe provide her a little assistance. Um, I guess my story is I want to support women candidates despite um, my very jaundiced permanent disappointment with whatever U.S. feminism is because, you know, Democrats. <laughs> and end of that lament for now. Thanks. Thanks, Amy. Uh, Christopher Ackman, I'm the prince. It's the communist revolution. <laughs> um, I live in SoCal. 
Uh, and the elections, well, we got to obviously uh, win the Green Movement. Uh, so pretty much I just want to... To have democracy across the world and have this be the promised land as the name, not USA. And uh, I guess the office of interest is any one that I'd support. Um, I'm not really running. Um, and story, I started working on Ecomedia, making the universal homepage when I was studying at UC Berkeley. And it's been about a decade and getting ready to launch it.eco. Um, and it pretty much supplies for the one currency uh, market. Um, and so this decade of the communist revolution gets us to zero GHG emissions. Um, we're at like the 420 CO2 supernova in heaven. <laughs> we gotta um, pretty much just keep it green and clean. All right, thanks, Chris. We also have Deborah with us. Hello. Hi, Deborah. We can hear you. Uh, hi, um, my name is Deborah. I'm from the Metro Detroit. Michigan area. Uh, what interests me about electoral work is affecting changes locally, like hands-on, listening to the community's needs and um, addressing them and uh, making sure that uh, these needs are being heard my office of interest, uh, gotta, that'd be really hard to choose because I think everything is important to me. Um, infrastructure, um, health, environment. Uh, so I don't know. I have to have a hard time choosing which one. And my story, um, while I'm originally from the East Coast, I joined the Green Party in uh, 2015. I was an organizer for the uh, 15 now to um, raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour back in 2015. And it is 2021 and things haven't changed because every time we fight for a living wage in this country, um, the, uh, well, I would say the capitalist system doesn't want that to happen, doesn't want the poor people to have their needs met. They want to keep us working uh, to the point of uh, sickness and dying because uh, all we do is work. Uh, we work and we don't have um, a life. Um, and we don't have, some of us don't even have a, a roof over our heads. Um, some of us don't even have access to healthy, uh, good quality food. So. Um, that's a couple of things that um, concern me amongst others, but um, that All would right. be it. Thank you. 
Thanks, Amy. And Robin's back with us. Robin, will you just introduce yourself and maybe say what interests you about electoral work? Yes, my name is Robin Harris. I'm in Orlando, Florida. Um, well, because I uh, just, uh, my interest in electoral work is I've recently um, filed to run for state representative um, here in Florida. This would be my second run. My first run was county commission, the state run. Um, no one has had a chance to vote since 2016. So um, I thought I would never do this again, but here I am. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Congratulations and thank you. Uh, sometimes repetition is what it takes. That's how people learn in general is through repetition. So um, even though it might be a different office that Robin's running in, there might, there's probably going to be the same core values of issues that you're talking about. Um, so I want to tell you my story pretty briefly because I think it's instructive because I think it's pretty common from other people's stories where uh, I was a campus activist and a community activist and a labor activist and something happened in my community that made me mad and so I started inquiring about it and found out oh I need to go to these city council meetings to see what's happening and I started going to these meetings and I started realizing there's a lot of things that I care about that in local government is being worked on kind of some of the things that Deborah was talking about these practical things and as a, a democratic socialist feminist, I really identified with the socialists in Milwaukee who deemed themselves sewer socialists, uh, who were wanting to make sure that people were housed now, that there was parks and recreation services for children now, that the schools were safe, that there was clean water and good sewer system, and these practical things that make families safe that make communities safe and, and are therefore makes the whole community safe. And so I, I ran in 1985 against a couple of very well-liked incumbents. I got trounced at the ballot box, but some of the issues that we talked about happened. And so we felt a lot of momentum from that effort. So that issue was making Iowa City a nuclear-free zone. And there was a movement across the country in the mid 80s, uh, across um, Interstate 80, which were near, uh, that if communities were nuclear free zones, then nuclear waste and components for nuclear energy couldn't be transported across the country and we could disrupt things a little bit. So even though we lost, Iowa City became a nuclear free zone. So I ran again in 1987 and our our focus was really about the public library and that there was some budget cuts and when library services are curtailed, it really impacts the community. Because for me, it's a little uh, corny, but the library is kind of the cornerstone of democracy. It's where everyone's equal. It's where people have access to information and technology and research librarians. And so during our campaign, the other thing that was lost when the library was closed a day a week was we lost a story hour. And I, I was a high school science teacher. And so I provided a story hour during the regular time. And so childcare centers brought their kids to outside the library where the doors were locked and the Cubby for Council campaign provided a story hour. Well, this time we didn't get trounced. We lost by just about 2%. 
and that next budget session, the library was fully funded. We had provided enough pressure from the campaign. So this felt very empowering to us that we're working on the campaign, not just to me as a candidate, but to the community of people that were working on the campaign. So we ran again in 89 during a special election where a lot of students and younger people were out of town. And this time we won by just about over 2%. So a couple days later, I had to take office and start making you know, multi-million dollar budget decisions. So I was very happy to be a prepared person ready to go. So one of the reasons I wanna talk about that is that there are lots of ways of establishing a win during a campaign. And for me, it was also important to look at kind of the larger picture of how does electoral work fit in with other organizing strategies. And for me, being a good organizer means I have to have three legs in order for my stool to be really sturdy so I can sit on it firmly and I'm not going to fall down. And for me in that community organizing stool, you've got um, educational campaigns where you're communicating with the community about why a living wage is important and what effects it will have on the on individual people, on people's ability to be housed and have health care and ability to kids to have the right size soccer shoes and the ability to just be healthy. And so there's an educational campaign. You might have direct action where you host rallies or teach-ins um, or you're trying to shut an office down. And when you combine those educational campaigns, the direct action and electoral work, you can really build momentum in your community for your organizing. And so electoral work isn't the only thing that should be done. I think it's strongest when it's done with these other two strategies. Uh, so for me, it's... Uh, when we're talking about women running for office, it's really important to know that there's lots of research out there right, there right now that really talks about the gender differences in recruiting and training candidates. In general, you need to ask women many more times than you ask a man. So you need to ask and ask and ask. Uh, women tend to want to be super prepared and so uh, it's important to provide that training and support and mentors for people. And one of the things we did here in our community was start a program called Electing Progressive Women. And we got 50 women in a room who were interested in running for office. And they all talked about what would make them step forward to actually get that candidacy petition, what offices they were interested in. And we found out a lot of information that is also very much a collabor uh, corroborated through the research. So we had like the next 14 election, local election cycles mapped out. One woman would say, I wanna run for County Board of Supervisor, but I can't do it till my youngest is in kindergarten and in school for half the day. It's like, great, what year is that? So we look at that year and start looking at those offices and start looking at what can she do to prepare herself to be, a, uh, to have comfort plunging in when her youngest is in, in kindergarten. So you can really map this out if you have a mind to. Uh, the other thing that's really important to think about as women candidates is a lot of times people kind of assume that there are, um, uh, 
topics that women will talk about. Uh, reproductive health care is one of them, which is a really critical uh, topic right now. It may not be so much a topic in local government, but certainly if you're doing state politics or national politics, it's really critical. Although there's plenty of stuff locally that can be done. But I want to make the case that we need to talk about childcare issues as an economic development issue. That when, if, if businesses need employees and they want the best pool of candidates, they need to be queer friendly. They need to make sure that they are child friendly businesses, that they offer good wages and healthcare. And when you do all those things in combination, you have a great pool of candidates in your community that can then support that business. So um, knowing these differences is really important so that when a woman says, no, I don't wanna do that, to know that it's not to pressure people, it's to know that there may be some other things that are in their lives that prevent them from saying yes and asking those questions and then providing uh, that support for them. So for me, one of the most important things uh, about running a campaign is defining the win. Because if you have a broad definition of winning an electoral campaign, it really dictates how do you spend your time as a candidate? How do volunteers spend their time? Where do you spend the amount of money that you have? So spending some time defining a win is really important. And maybe even before you do that, thinking about kind of running a people's campaign, there are probably three kinds of campaigns that happen. One is kind of um, a cult of personality. You have a person who is dynamic, that is energetic, that is charismatic, that is articulate, that is likable and is willing to work hard. And people will gravitate towards that person. And this kind of campaign can have a lot of momentum but probably only for a moment. So it's really important that that charismatic person is connected to a larger organization and larger goals for the community and not just kind of an ego-based campaign uh, because it, that kind of campaign really does little to build the movement in your community. So the second kind of people's campaign is one about educating your community about an issue. And so um, it's a tool that you can use to reframe issues like I tried to do just in talking about childcare as an economic development issue. Um, and it really can help build the movement and build the Green Party as well. And then the third way is to think about electoral work as, as building the Green Party. So one of your defines of a win might be how many more people are registered as green after the election as in comparison to before the election. So the things that I want to encourage you to do when you're defining a win is to have them be um, metrics that you can measure them or that uh, if they're qualitative uh, that you can get some uh, surveying or some anecdotal information from people. So certainly a win is defined by winning at the ballot box. It's an important definition of win. But there are lots of other ways to be effective at changing things in the community. And one of them is to control the agenda, to guide the campaigns of other candidates by 
being clear and articulate about what you think are the important things are and asking can other candidates to speak to those issues and talk about your differences. You might do that by starting pretty early in the campaign season to get out there so everyone looks to you. And every time someone else joins the race, they're also saying, well, Robin Harris has been has announced her candidacy and as well as Jim. And then, then, then Carol jumps in and it's, well, Robin started her campaign in January and then there's Jim and then there's Deborah. So um, that repetition, getting your name out there, it's a little bit of marketing, but it is, it's also about familiarity. And so making sure that people aren't um, afraid of you with that Green Party label, that they can better understand what it is. And that means getting out there and there's no getting around physically getting out there and interacting with people. One of the goals of your campaign may be that disenfranchised communities grow, vote in greater percentages in that particular race than in the past. So you might have a neighborhood that is predominantly people of color, and they might not vote in local elections as a body, as a neighborhood. You can look at those percentages from previous races and then look at it afterwards if you spend a lot of time in that neighborhood, see if that neighborhood in general tended to vote in greater numbers. That's a win. You've got more people involved in more local issues. If your coalition has broadened, so maybe you started the campaign out with your core group being Green Party members, but if by the end of the campaign, you have local queer organizations, you have the lay of some people in the labor movement and some neighborhood organizations, you can see that that coalition is building around the campaign. Maybe you can work to keep that coalition together around issues in between the campaigns, whether or not you've won at the ballot boxes. Um, uh, we worked one campaign where our, one of our candidates actually was unopposed. And so we took that opportunity to use it as a training ground so that I didn't always have to be the campaign manager because it can be exhausting. And so we used it as an opportunity so that the treasurer, the campaign manager, the volunteer coordinator, and the media person all had kind of a second chair and so we ran the campaign as if there was opposition, which really got issues out. And we trained some other people in how to do electoral work. And of course, it's always gonna build a candidate's skills and increase their exposure by running multiple times or by um, just being out there. So by defining your win, it's gonna dictate how do you use volunteers? Where do you spend money? How do you use media? So when you're thinking about running, there's some things you need to think about in terms of kind of pre-campaigning. So uh, the first one is self-acceptance. So do you, how do you feel about yourself? Because you're gonna get, you're putting yourself out there as an individual, even if you have a broad coalition and it's not a person, a cult of personality campaign, you are still the highlighted person. Your name is on the ballot. People are volunteering to put you in office. You need to be willing to hear some critique. You need to be willing to hear the worst thing that can be said about you and figure out how to move forward through that. It might be 
about past drug use. It might be about sex in the alley in another part of your life. It might be about traffic tickets, incarceration, a blow up on Facebook with someone that comes out. So you just need to be willing to see those things about you. So one example, this is maybe not greatest for the Green Party, but I think about when Bill Clinton said that he didn't inhale. So for me, first of all, I thought, well, what a waste of resources. And we know he And so really the best thing for him to have done in that situation is to say, yes, I experimented with marijuana. It didn't really work for me. I don't do it anymore. So I think that the best way to dispel those kinds of skeletons in your closet is to own them and to talk about what that was and what it is for you right now and then move on to your issues. I think making sure it's the right office for you is really important. So if you're known as an activist who's working on environmental issues and specifically water quality, if your county or state has a soil and water conservation district commission, that's an awesome place to get some real work done to actually not just talk about increasing water quality, but getting some money and resources and confronting landowners about increasing water quality. But if you're a social worker who's working on mental health issues, maybe the soil and water conservation district isn't the place, isn't the right office for you. Maybe it's whatever entity in your area is the one that works on human resources funding to make sure that uh, mental health funding is robust, that it's offered in lots of different ways, and that police departments are skewing their services towards mental health or skewed towards not calling the police, but instead calling a mental health professional when that is warranted. So really thinking about who are you? What's your area of expertise and passion? What jazzes you? What's going to make you really work hard for that office and be effective in that office? It also is looking at what's up, what offices are available, what, where, maybe where is there no opposition? And that might be another way to look at which office is right for you. Uh, if you have a family, uh, having their support is really important. It's possible to run a campaign with your family not really being into it, but it's a lot more, it's helpful to have that family support. And I just put in, uh, and Hillary mentioned this too, but if you go to uh, gp.org and look under Coordinated Campaign Committee, you will find, uh, and hopefully this will be included uh, along with the national meeting workshops, but this one and others that Karen and, and we have put on webinars, trainings, and uh, uh, we'll be having a list of ever increasingly updated list of candidates and including women candidates. The Women's Caucus also helps look into that and do what they can to promote, publicize, and sometimes even offer a little bit of funding, not much, but so, so all that's in the work, in the works, and people can check those out for resources. First, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories, topics, or rantings you message on Facebook, Twitter at Three Left Show. You can also email at Three Left Show at Gmail. This program is made as a part of independent community radio, so support us materially along with other producers and citizen journalists with a donation 
or membership to WCAALP at grandarts.org. Capitalism doesn't value this work, so to support myself personally, become a member of my Patreon, which is also at 3 Left Show. Support the show of your time by telling others you believe would be interested, liking and sharing and checking in on our social media pages, as word of mouth is our best advertising. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps like Stitcher, Apple Store, and Google Play. But a full archive of the podcast, along with links, sources, and notes, are found at 3lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the three lefts. assault on our planet, uh, destroying land, sea, and air, is accompanied by a global debt soon to reach $300 trillion. 
that is oppression of the entire planet. The cost could well be civilization in a planet unable to support human life. I hope you've all seen the research from Stockholm Resilience showing nine planetary boundaries within which is safe operating space for life on the planet. They show that four of the nine have been crossed because of human activity, climate change, loss of biosphere integrity, land system change, altered biogeochemical cycles of phosphorus and nitrogen. David Attenborough has a new movie out uh, about these boundaries and points out uh, when, when we crossed the ozone layer boundary, world leaders got together and agreed to new rules and brought us back into safe territory quick. This needs to happen again soon regarding the other boundaries. We must urge or replace world leaders to alter our systems and get us back into safe territory. So it, it's a political issue with our world leaders, right? It's government. And whose government, right? <laughs> it's supposed to be we the people's government. The Princeton study showed that statistically, the public has zero influence on public policy. Note that the largest contributor is the financial sector. As Senator Dermond said, the banks run this place. The big banks, through interlocking directorates, control all the major corporations and dominate every industry. Note that over a 10 year period, the 200 most politically active corporations spent $5.8 billion influencing government and got back $4 trillion in subsidies and supports. The capitalists who owned the banks discovered long ago that controlling governments was their most profitable enterprise. And here we see a 670% return on investment. It's hard to imagine getting that from any other investment. We often talk about monopolies dominating and controlling markets and government, but as we see, not all monopolies are equal because they are all dominated by the money, the financial system. The funders of oppression are, uh, are all the major corporations in every sector, even sports teams uh, and universities uh, donate to oppression, to foundations that uh, fund uh, things like this. Uh, let's see, next, funding the police, right? There's police foundations and all of these big corporations send money to these police foundations and um, the militarization of the police, for instance, is funded by foundations to which all the major corporations contribute. Police departments already have massive budgets, averaging 20 to 45% of a municipal budget, while police foundations provide millions of dollars to purchase surveillance equipment and weapons with little public input or oversight. They also provide a public-private structure wherein the corporate elite can overtly support police departments through direct donations, sponsorship, special programs, and by serving as directors on foundation boards. The network of financial institutions are among the largest contributors to police, and they also own controlling interest in all the major corporations. 
Take just the food industry, for example. There are hundreds of food companies, but they are all owned and controlled by just 11 food corporations. Okay, you might ask, well, who owns them? Well, it turns out BlackRock owns controlling interest in all 11 of those corporations. BlackRock and Vanguard have ownership in some 1,600 American firms, which in 2015 had combined revenues of $9.1 trillion. When you add in the third largest global owner, State Street, their combined ownership encompasses nearly 90% of all S&P 500 firms. Okay, so who owns controlling interest in BlackRock? Well, it turns out the second of the two largest asset management firms in the world, Vanguard does. And who owns controlling interest in Vanguard? Well, the structure of Vanguard is a bit unique in that it makes it very difficult to determine uh, that. But we do know that all the major old money families, familiar names, are all heavily invested there. So what else is new, eh? This 1911 illustration shows the people on the bottom, we who make all the goods and services supporting the wealthy, over them, uh, carrying them, all right, the 1%, and over them, the military protecting and extending their wealth. And on top of them, we have the clergy and the church, now largely replaced by schools and media. And the political minions are on top of them, uh, of the oligarchs who control the money, which is on top of them, which is at the top of the oppression pyramid, the money creating authorities and uh, world wealth. So we can see highly profitable this debt money system is, and it's over 400 years old, amassing enormous wealth. We can see how it centralizes control of the ecologically destructive food system. Debt has driven 5 million small farmers out of business since 1950. This destroyed the thriving local rural economies that once dotted the landscape. This destruction of local economies which still goes on today, drives people to the cities, centralizing the population for central control. Huge slums surround many of the developing world cities as people compete for jobs that now, due to online retailers, are also disappearing as shops close. What is going on right now in the world? Okay, we're gonna move to the deep level of, um, internalized oppression. And here, whoops, okay. Here we talk about the psychological consequences of capitalism. Harriet Fraud, you may know her, she's married to a, an, a famous economist. Um, said that human connection is the most important thing in the world. Capitalism has isolated people in a very scary way. And I recommend you go listen to some of her talks on YouTube. They're, they're pretty good, they're very good. 
This is what an economist said in regards to that. He said, economics without input from psychology is similar to doing mechanics while ignoring the laws of physics. And we find that to be true. The, uh, the monetary system we have is based on usury. We've known for a long time that usury had psychological effects. It is the abuse of monetary authority for personal gain. A lot of people say, oh, it's just too much interest. And that certainly can be abuse of monetary authority. But to create money as debt for profit, that's, that's also an abuse of monetary authority, I'd say. <laughs> and Dante said of it, he said, it, he described it as an extraordinarily efficient form of violence by which you do the most damage with the least effort. There's research, there's a growing body of research and you can uh, search psychological consequences of money and you'll find a bunch of it. And um, of course the money that they're studying, of course, is the money that we use, which is usury money, uh, money issued under usury. And what they found was, uh, you know, that the mere presence of money changes people and that money can be a barrier to social intimacy and that the mere exposure to money can trigger unethical intentions and behavior. And I'm just going to share one of the research projects that they did that kind of illustrates this uh, dynamic. They had uh, two classrooms and two classes of uh, college students and one in each one, and they gave them a quiz uh, uh, with a bunch of ambiguous questions, you know. And in one of the rooms, there was a big picture of a dollar bill on the wall. And in the other room was a picture of a seashell. Now, um, of course, the money here is a Federal Reserve note, and that represents the debt money system. And the seashell on the right is actually used for money, too, even in some places of Africa today. But uh, it is uh, a cowrie shell that was used for uh, centuries as money. But so when they divided these two classrooms up and they started taking the test and the people at the, the scientists then looked through the window to gauge what behavior was going on. And what they found was that in the room uh, where the people with the dollar bill they said they preferred working alone to collaboration. They sat farther apart from one another. They hesitated to ask each other for help. When they did ask for help, they responded to requests as, as if they were insensitive to others. In other words, they weren't feeling good and they were feeling kind of wanting to stay amongst in their self, you know? But when they looked in the window of the other room, they found that everyone was sitting close together in a group, didn't ask, didn't hesitate to ask each other for help. They were sensitive to how others felt and they laughed and joked and collaborated. I think this is an important um, distinction to realize that the money on the left is privately issued for profit the money on the right was publicly issued for care, for the just a pure exchange medium 
So ending the oppression of the debt money system. Let's get into that. We, we've talked about oppression enough. Let's out of, see how to fix it. <laughs> and the first thing I want to talk about is leverage points because the economic system is a system. And a leverage point is a point within a complex system, such as a corporation or a living body, a city, an ecosystem, or an economy, where one small change in one thing can change the entire system. And systems uh, analysts will often say that, yeah, they come into a corporation, for instance, and they've got a problem with one of their systems. And we go to look at the system when we discover that there's lots of attention on that point but they're all pushing the wrong direction. <laughs> In an economic system, money is the leverage point because the economic system is the exchange of goods and services and we use money to do that. So it's a leverage point, important part of that. And so the greening of the dollar offers three essential reforms to fix that. And this comes, uh, all the legislation was submitted to uh, Congress also uh, doing these same three things by Dennis Kucinich back in 2011. It was called the NEED Act. It's uh, now been updated and is the uh, Monetary Reform Act of 2020. I hear it on this one, so. The, um, the first reform would be Fed becomes part of our government. The second, bank creation of money is stopped. And third, elected government creates and spends U.S. money into the economy. And of course, they would be spending it on into the productive economy, not speculation, which is where a lot of the money is going from the commercial banks. And all three reforms should be done at once too, or power will remain with the banks because the Bank of England was nationalized in 1946, but they still don't control their money. The, the, the commercial banks still control the 97% uh, of issuing the money. Oh, could um, someone talking during this, please mute. Um, Jackson and Van Buren revoked the second bank of the U.S. because they, uh, uh, but because he didn't, you know, he stopped the banks issuing money. But because he didn't issue any money, that caused a depression immediately. And debt-free greenbacks were created under Lincoln, but because he didn't stop the banks from creating money, well, maybe they eventually got the uh, advantage on it. And um, so also I want to point out that government does better than the banks when it comes to monetary policy. History shows us all the way through the course that uh, economies have always been more stable under government control of the money than they have under uh, banks. Now, you, you could bring up examples like Weimar Republic or Argentina and some of these things, and they're always blamed on the government. And that is bank strategy, to blame it always on the government because they control their central banks mostly around the world. So uh, the, the idea is to always blame the government for what the banks have done. And of course, the banks in uh, Weimar Republic of Germany in intentionally destroyed that economy to install Hitler. Money has two roles. And we generally only know about 
the first one. It's an exchange meeting. It's just money. It's neutral, right? It's just, we pass it around, we buy stuff. It's just, you know, nothing to it. But it's also an instrument of power, the hidden hand, so to speak, in the markets. They talk about the hidden hand is money. Because if you hoard a lot of money, you can dominate a market. You can buy an industry. You can control a government. So the, the trick is going to be how can money's characteristics as a usurious instrument of power be overcome without eliminating its positive qualities as a neutral medium of exchange? You know, Because if we issue public money, for instance, well, there's already a whole bunch of wealth out there. So how do we deal with that? Well, we got that problem solved. Because Silvio Gassell in 1919 wrote The Natural Economic Order, in which he pointed out that we must make money worse as a commodity if we wish to make it better as a medium of exchange. <laughs> and, and he, he uh, explained how to do that. And uh, where'd my laptop go? <laughs> and... Um, Anyway, he, uh, he was brilliant because uh, you and Keynes and, um, and Fisher, they all admired this guy when they um, found out about him, but they didn't admire him because of his book, you know. They, they read his book after, uh, he, his, after he died and after his... Um, ideas were put into, were implemented and saw how they worked, that got their attention. That got the attention of the world, in fact, because the miracle of Virgil just spread like wildfire around the world. It was 1931, the depression. And this town, the mayor had read Silvio Gassel's book. And so he started, uh, talked to the city council and they decided they would issue a currency with a demurrage fee on it. Now, a demurrage fee is kind of like a parking fee. It's a declining, slowly declining value of the money. And this increases circulation, and it also prevents hoarding. So think about those massive hoards of money kept, kept in private offshore accounts, and suddenly we change the money to U.S. money. And that includes all of that money. And we put a negative uh, fee on it so that it starts shrinking in their bank accounts unless they spend it and get it invested. And they'll take riskier investments too because they're losing value in their money. And this is a good thing for the people because the people in Wurgle enjoyed two and a half million dollars worth of public projects being completed in 15 months. I mean, it employed everyone and it, uh, and it made them prosperous during that time. And they even started thinking about the future. They built a ski jump. They started replanting their forests around. They built a big uh, water reservoir and a bridge uh, besides extending all their uh, water system and paved streets and streetlights out throughout the town. And of course, that got the attention of towns all around the world, and everybody wanted to do it. And the towns around Wargle did start doing it. 
but soon the German government shut him down because, you know, couldn't have that. The bankers didn't like it. But in 1933, thousands of cities and towns all around the world wanted to duplicate the miracle of Wurgle, and they started issuing stamp script too. And a lot of them didn't know how to do it exactly. So Irving Fisher wrote a book called Stamp Script to get out to the people to show them how to do it. And he told FDR, he said, let's make this a policy so that, the, you know, as an emergency measure to get the uh, economy going again, because it could get it going in just a few weeks. FDR said, no, of course, because he was from a banking family. <laughs> it's not a new idea, really. Um, to have a, a currency of declining value. And because the ancient Egyptians had one, uh, when the farmers would bring their grain to the public granaries, they were given a receipt that had the date and the amount that they were storing. And so if they had uh, say 10 sacks of grain that they brought in uh, at the, uh, in spring, when they go to get it back, they could only get nine sacks of grain with that money. So it was a slowly declining value. And this created prosperity amongst the people because they passed around as money from one another. And so this created a legendary uh, prosperity in ancient Egypt for 3000 years. And they also started thinking about the future. That's kind of what the pyramids were about. And they worshiped Isis, the deity. This reemerged in the high middle ages where the Lords, not really realizing it, issued a currency of declining value for 250 years. And this created enormous prosperity in central Europe. And uh, the, the, the people ate so well, they grew tall. The, the average height of uh, people in the high middle ages, in the late high middle ages, were taller than the average European is today. And uh, they did. And that's also the, what they call the real renaissance, because that's when the universities first began. Um, uh, women enjoyed much more um, freedom and position. Uh, the sacred mother was worshipped in the form of the Black Madonna which was all over Europe at the time. Uh, statues, um, I believe, probably taken from Egypt. <laughs> uh, but they, they worshipped a, a female deity. And all of these, they built a thousand cathedrals during that time. And those cathedrals were all funded by the people themselves. They weren't funded by the state or the church. The people built these. And they built them for economic reasons, because they wanted to attract pilgrims to their town. And they were thinking of the future, which is why they built the things three times larger than the village that built them. <laughs> I mean, so they could seat three times as many people, right? So if it's a village of 50 people, they had a cathedral that could seat 150. And uh, it, it worked too, because those towns are still tourist attractions and people come there and spend their money still so it worked very well but 
that only lasted for 250 years. And because of war debt, because at the same time, those guys were getting into the Crusades and stuff like that. And all this war debt was amassing. And they had to turn over their monetary system to the bankers, to the money lenders, they called them at the time, you know, the people that really had the wealth that they would borrow gold from to pursue war. And then they were in debt. And because war is not very profitable, usually. Um, to to the people fighting it anyway and uh so that a little piece of history there that it's not a new thing and it's been proven to work very well and it works because of the dynamics of net present value and this affects human psychology and it's expressed in a mathematical equation and um it's kind of interesting that that works like that. And to demonstrate this, just let me show you this little set of slides um, here that this is our baseline. So in 10 years, pine trees are worth 100, and 100 years, an oak tree is worth 1,000. That's the base. And if you do the, your system with a currency at 5% interest, positive interest, then in 10 years, those pine trees are only worth $61 and hundred years are only worth 760 in that equation. If you have a currency of minus 5% in 10 years, the pine trees are worth $167 and the oak tree is like worth golly over $150,000. So this all operates subconscious operates subconscious and that's why people were thinking the future they didn't know anything about a mathematical equation nothing at all it was all uh the psychological effect of the money system because since the dawn of times monetary systems have been shaping the flows of human activity in every realm of endeavor food production education health business etc by term determining how we value apply and exchange our creativity and the fruits of our labor it is for this reason the most influential of all human made systems so how do we get this thing happening well there's a couple of different ideas uh, one is we've got this monetary reform we've got our legislation in our platform to go after monetary reform but there's very little political action on that lever right now because everybody's engaged in issues that are kind of caused by this money system you know all of the issues with immigration all of the issues with war and peace the issues with economic injustice racism all of those issues are affected by the monetary system negatively and so i'm something we could do use some leverage right know those issues are caused by the monetary system and so we use them as the fulcrum there's they're the reasons why we want monetary reform and we get on the end of that monetary reform lever and we can move the world oh come all ye citizens and hear my tale of woe all because I voted for Ralph Nader. How I ruined the country with my choice five years ago. All because I voted for Ralph Nader.
In the year 2000, the election was a loss. The votes were never counted, and Bush became the boss. And all my liberal friends tell me that I am the cause. All because I voted for Ralph Nader. Yes, Governor Jeb Bush delivered his state. All because I voted for Ralph Nader. The votes were never counted in Florida to date. All because I voted for Ralph Nader. Blacks could not vote, they were criminalized. Jews marked Buchanan on those dreaded butterflies. And the Supreme Court ruled to cover all the lies. All because I voted for Ralph Nader. The Twin Towers fell and 3,000 died. All because I voted for Ralph Nader. The terrorists came and there was no place to hide. All because I voted for Ralph Nader. The Democrats voted to bomb Afghanistan to cut back freedoms once enjoyed across the land. The party of Jefferson afraid to take a stand. All because I voted for Ralph Nader. W set his sights on Saddam in Iraq. All because I voted for Ralph Nader. The Democrats gave the okay to attack. All because I voted for Ralph Nader. The president said he'd wage eternal war. And the Democrats nodded from the Senate floor. And all the while the money dried up for the poor. All because I voted for Ralph Nader. Now color-coded warnings invade our every thought. All because I voted for Ralph Nader. Duct tape and plastic are all that we've got. All because I voted for Ralph Nader. The fires will rage throughout the Middle East. The terrorist threat will continue to increase. And war will go on, there never will be peace. All because I voted for Ralph Nader. So today we are talking about uh, open source voting software and, and voting technology in general. Uh, what I hope everyone will come away with today is, is a better understanding of uh, the different voting methodologies that are out there and how they are implemented in software and also what free open source software is. The reason this is important is that if we don't have integrity in the voting, then we don't have democratic elections and that's, everyone understands why that's not great. You know, the first question is, why don't we just use uh, OpaVote or, or, or whatever uh, free solution is out there on the internet? Uh, the issues with that include anonymity. Uh, you know, these people who we don't really know who they are typically have our emails, they even have our voting records. Um, we don't know what their code actually does. You know, so there's no transparency into that. And then if we need to do an audit, you know, how do we do that? Because uh, you know, we can't really get at the internals of, of how these systems work. And then there's the issue always with elections of bad actors. Uh, whether it's hacker, hackers or infiltrators, uh, we have to assume that there are people that are going to break into us. Uh, it could just be disruptor people. These are the kids that give out the password to their teachers 
Zoom uh, meetings so that people can Zoom bomb them with, with pictures of porn. Uh, then we've got people that are actually, that are crooks, you know, that are mobsters, uh, fishers that are trying to uh, convince people that they're their bank and to get people to log in and give their banking details. And there's also opposition parties. You know, the Green Party in particular has had a lot of trouble with being infiltrated uh, by a particular party. So we have to assume that they're somewhere in the vicinity. And then, of course, there's state surveillance uh, that, you know, our own state or possibly foreign actors uh, want to uh, monitor us and possibly disrupt us. So all these things make systems that we don't control not a great choice because it, it makes it pretty easy for uh, all these things to go wrong. So I'm going to talk about my personal voting experience. Uh, back in 2020, I, I ran for mayor of Beverly Hills. It was my first experience uh, as someone running for office. And anyone who wants to understand our voting system or activism or anything about politics, I would strongly recommend that you find a local office, either your city council or your school board and run for office because you know, whether you, you get elected or not, you will learn so much about how our electoral process works that is not taught and is different from what people generally imagine it to be. So um, California, Los Angeles in particular is very progressive, created its own voting software because all of the voting software uh, that was out there uh, had questionable ties. Most, most commercial voting software is backed by uh, corporations that actually back the Republican Party. Uh, so Los Angeles County said, well, we'll build our own and we'll make it open source. So in the election, the Secretary of State, just by luck, picked me to be first on the ballot. And even though VSAP had done studies that showed it didn't really advantage you to be first on the ballot, uh, the Beverly Hills City Council and the incumbents were horrified that I was first on the ballot and immediately launched a lawsuit uh, to try to roll back electronic voting. You now they don't want a non-incumbent on the number, number one on the ballot ever again, but they can't put that in the lawsuit. So what they said it was is that there's flaws in the voting system. And no voting system is perfect, but the city council is so ignorant of how voting systems work that they're not really qualified to make that judgment. So anyway, that's what's going on. That lawsuit is ongoing. They're still trying to roll back electronic voting. Um, the incumbents, on the other hand, are backed by hedge fund and gentrification developers. They have unlimited campaign finance. No, no amount of money that I raised could not be doubled by them. Uh, they spent $20 per vote uh, received in the election. So for every vote that they got, they, they campaigned with $20. Okay. Um, I also had an experience with, with voting within the Green Party. Uh, so I ran for Echo Action Secretary, and I wasn't actually keen to be Echo Action Secretary. It's, it's kind of a lot of work and not a very glamorous job. But I wanted to know firsthand how the Green Committee voting system worked. And so the only way, you know, having had the experience of, of running for city council where I learned so much about things not being the way I thought they were, I said, well, you know, I should do this again, but this time internal to the Greens. Um, and the other thing about it was that I, it just kind of stuck in my craw to have an election uh, that 
on a committee that I was a participant in and have candidates running unopposed. That, that's not an election, that's an appointment. So I was shocked that my, my opponent was hostile to my running, that, that he became indignant, they you know, considered it a personal insult that I would run against him. Uh, you know, I wasn't that aggressive an opponent. Um, and then the, the election itself was very interesting. All, all the votes except for the chair who endorsed the, my opposition candidate were invalid because the chair botched repeatedly the directions to voters on when to vote and how to vote. And it was just a big mess. Um, some people were quite upset. I wasn't upset because I had gone just to learn how our voting system worked. And so I declined calls to run a real, to rerun the election. You know, I, I said that, you know, even though it was only, I forget, it was one or two votes that were considered valid that, that made my opponent win, I was like, you know, that, that's fine. You know, I, I had, you know, I, I had learned what I came to learn. And we ran another election uh, uh, a few months later and as a result of, of lessons learned, it was much, much better. So, so we did learn from this experience. So let's talk about voting uh, methodologies. Um, I, there, there are more than, than the six here that I've listed. I only found out about star voting yesterday, as a matter of fact, from, uh, from someone in the Green Party. Um, but I'm just gonna go through these because in, unless you run for election, you're, you know, I, I was unaware what all these, I'd heard of these, but I didn't know what they meant. So, you know, with, with blackball, that just means it's gonna be unanimous. And, and oftentimes in, in committees or private clubs or things like that, we have blackball elections. Um, but, you know, I'm not gonna talk about blackball here because it rarely applies in politics. So then we have right choice voting, which is what's endorsed uh, by the Green Party, it's in all bylaws. Uh, and then there's first past the post, which is the voting system that most of us are accustomed to and is, is the dominant voting system. Then there's uh, star and approval voting, which can be thought of as simplified ranked choice voting systems. And there's down vote, uh, which is what the internet uses. And I'll talk about each of these in turn. So here's ranked choice voting. Um, at the time that the Green Party uh, endorsed it and said that we needed ranked choice voting, uh, it, it was rare. There were very few places that had ranked choice voting. Um, the thing about ranked choice is that you rank all the candidates and uh, as candidates fall out, the rankings change. There, there are multiple rounds of tallying the votes until you finally get down to uh, who, the, who the winner is. And in vote, when the voting isn't close, it really doesn't give any different result than first past the post. But when voting, uh, when it's a close race, RCV can, can flip the vote. It can, it can make a big difference. Um, an issue about RCV is the complexity of it. It makes audit difficult. And I can't imagine what it would be like in Arizona if, if that was not a, of an RCV vote. I mean, they can't even audit an FPP vote that is 10 times simpler. Then uh, we had uh, RCV rollout in New York recently, and that was botched and, and you know, doesn't really increase confidence. And the, the biggest uh, complaint I have about RCV is that it hasn't elected any Greens. Uh, you know, I'd just like to see that it actually works. Uh, proponents of it say, hey, you know, we just need to keep trying, it's too soon. And you know, they could be right, I don't know. So here's first past the post. This is the traditional winner takes all. Uh, California state elections are actually top two 
fast, first pass the post. I'll, I'll talk about that a little more in a moment. Um, the top two candidates go to jungle primary. So it's a primary open to all. And whoever the top two vote getters are in the primary, they do a runoff in the general election. Now that's at the state level. Local elections are open to all comers and are nonpartisan. Um, you know, when I run for city council, uh, you know, I'm not supposed to say what party I'm from because that's actually a violation of the California state constitution. You know, we're all we're all supposed to be, um, you know, here for local constituencies and not uh, supposed to be a party uh, mouthpiece. So that's how that's how California works. So it's very interesting the history of California top two voting. Um, Back in, I think it was 2003, uh, Green candidate Matt Gonzalez, Matt Gonzalez, sorry, uh, got on the ballot against Gavin Newsom, who's now our governor. And Newsom just barely won. You know, if, if a, a, a little more effort from the party might have flipped that election. And after he served, after he got reelected to, to mayor, he then ran for governor and is now our governor. But I can easily imagine an alternative reality in which Gonzalez had won San Francisco in 2003 and would now be governor, and we wouldn't be actually having a recall of Newsom because he wouldn't be our governor yet. Okay, so here's star voting. This is a solution that people came up with that said that right choice voting is, is too tough because it makes you really know who all your candidates are, and you know, no one has the patience for it. So what this is doing is, is saying that, you know, here's, here's my least evil choice and here's my favorite choice, you know, make it one of these guys. So it's like, it's sort of a top two ranked choice system, if you, if you will. And then uh, approving voting is also similar to, uh, to RCV. In this system, you just vote for all the guys that would be acceptable to you. And then whoever gets the most votes wins, you know, you can, you can vote you know, in, in my city council race, there were six of us running. Uh, you could vote for three of us. And even though there were only two seats, the, the two who got the most seats would have won in an approval voting type of system. Not, not, not that that's what we have in California. I'm saying this is uh, another voting system that um, is, is in, in a few places. And then with downvote voting, this is how the internet deals with toxic content. You know, just everybody downvotes it until Facebook kicks them off or whatever. And this hasn't been tried in the political system, but I think is very interesting because one of the big problems we have with the American voting system is that disaffected voters won't vote. They, they won't register to vote, they won't go to the polls because they feel there's nothing for them. But if we had downvote voting, uh, maybe they would come to the polls because they really dislike a particular candidate and we'd come just to vote against that guy. So, you know, especially uh, in recent elections, we've had that situation. And the other thing that would be great if we actually had downvote voting somewhere is it would stop protest votes being misrepresented as some kind of mandate. That, that when people come out uh, to vote for their least evil candidate, that candidate can't turn around and say, see, I'm, you know, everyone backs me, I'm, I'm popular. Okay, so now I'm gonna switch gears for a second and talk about free open source software. I, I've been involved in this for decades uh, I wrote a column at a magazine about graphics. And while writing that column, I heard about some software the film industry had developed uh, and decided to make open source um, that's now called Cinepaint. 
And the Cinevate software uh, is sort of like Photoshop, but for movies. And was used in the Harry Potter films, Lord of the Rings films, Too Fast, Too Furious. Uh, all, all kinds of films have used have used this software because it's free. You, know, you just download it, and it's yours. There's an IT cost to to maintaining it, but you don't have to buy it to begin with. And so, um, you know, I, I have a lot of experience with free open source software, and then I've also been a Linux systems admin since the '90s. And Linux is what powers the internet. It's probably what's powering, uh, I, I would assume it's what's powering this actually, actually this Zoom call that we're on right now. So let's talk about open source voting software. Um, you know, I, I came across the, the green vote source code on the, on the green uh, website. Uh, there, there's a link buried somewhere where you can find the software. And I said, well, you know, let's put this on GitHub and make everybody aware of it. You know, offer it, you know, get it where people will find it. GitHub is the largest uh, open source software hub. So it's where people kind of look first if they're looking for some kind of uh, open source. So I put GreenVote on, and then people said, well, don't just do them. You know, there are these other open source. So I said, OK, well, I'll take everybody. So there, there's, there's DemoChoice, there's CIBS, which is more of a university system. There's every election. And I'm not endorsing any of these. I'm just saying, here they are. You know, come enjoy, help yourself. Uh, and also, I'm trying to get VSAP. VSAP has been promised to be open source, but it hasn't been open sourced yet. But when I, I'm on the committee, and I'm trying to get it done, so when when that is when that is available, uh, we'll have that. And the interesting thing about VSAP is that system is actually used to elect. Candidates. You know, the, the other systems are, are internal election systems, but VSAP is actually a public election system that is used to uh, elect politicians in California. Okay, so here are some desirable voting capabilities. Um, you know, we'd like to have identity. We make make sure that 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 people are voting who are allowed to vote. And a lot of people get messed up in this because they're used to ID being an ID card of, of having identity be some document that proves who you are. But the way that voting systems work because we want to maintain anonymity is that we keep a list of who all the voters are. And as long as people have registered to vote and show up, we just take their word for it that they're voters. And we look for people that vote twice because that would mean that someone, you know, that there's corruption in the system. And because of uh, traceability, uh, in, in general, those people get caught. It's, it's not uh, generally feasible to cheat in elections uh, at the voter level. At the, at the ballot box level, cheating is a big concern. You know, that, that, that officials would manipulate the ballot box is, is you know, is, is where voter fraud comes from. You know, that, that 100 people show up and double vote you know, unless the election is extremely close, it makes no difference at all. And so there's, there are very few people that even will attempt that. You know, it's, it's like people who expect to win the lottery. So uh, then usability, we want people to understand uh, the system. We want reliability. Uh, ACID means that, that, we, that we have data security, that if the system crashes, we still have the data. And blockchain is another way to uh, ensure that the data is not tampered with later. Blockchaining 
signs each vote as it arrives with the votes that have already been laid down, it makes it very difficult to reach into a voter database uh, and to reach into a vote database and change the votes because none of the blockchain signatures will match anymore. It'll be obviously tampered with. Um, and then security, uh, you know, we need some way of dealing with any fraudulent ballots that we that we do that we do receive and a clear process for for resolving them. And then configurability, um, we want voters to uh, be able to review that their vote was cast as they expected. They need some sort of paper receipt or, or something equivalent to a paper receipt so they can check that their vote is actually what they said it is and that it wasn't switched to the ballot box on them somehow. Um, we need uh, that either the voter can or cannot change their vote after it's cast. And if they can change it, we have to be very careful how that works, that it doesn't introduce voter fraud. Um, then, uh, you know, the, the, the double vote thing, um, you know, we have to uh, deal with that the same way that we would with, the, with people who can change their vote. Those are all related, you know, technologically, these are the same problem. Uh, people that are dead voting, uh, you know, that involves clearing up the voter rules and things that, like that, that's not really in the voting system itself necessarily. Uh, and then uh, we need to decide whether we're going to let people see the vote totals as they go, or we're going to wait until the end before we reveal, you know, do we, do we want people to see how the vote's going so maybe they come out and, and vote to, to change the outcome? Or do we not want to show that because it influences the outcome? You know, either way can be an argument. Um, yeah, we just want to make sure that the admin can't change the visibility mid vote in a way that's going to skew the election, uh, which is what happened to me in the, in the committee vote. Um, then uh, we need to have our auditing methodology. Uh, and then we have to choose our actual voting type. You know, how, how are we going to, uh, to, to hold the election? And so ideally, a voting system would support every type of voting system so that we can pick whichever one you know, we choose to, to use for the election. And that is it for my presentation. Um, I didn't see any hands raised or anybody barge in, so I guess I'll open it to voting now, or to, to, I'm sorry, open it to voting. Open it to, to comment now. Is, is everybody still with me? Yes, right here. Um, I think um, in the chat, uh, someone mentioned something. I don't know if you can see the whole thing there, Robin. Oh, wait. If no, you I wanted to comment on that. Now, now I see. I didn't see that someone was on chat because I had the, the window in front of me. Yep, no problem. <laughs> okay. Okay, so I'd feel more secure with hand-counted paper ballots. Um, well, that's fine when there's 100, 1,000, or 10,000 ballots. But when we get into millions of ballots, it gets pretty ugly having hand-counted paper ballots. And in the, um, you know, in, in, the, in the Gore election, a lot of paper ballots vanished, and we had the butterfly ballots. You know, paper ballots have a lot of problems themselves. Yeah, you know, it's 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 not that it's not that simple. Paper ballots face a lot of the problems that software ballots face. They're they're not immune. The great thing about paper ballots is is that it's, um, you know, you feel like you're sure that 
that it was voted the way you thought you voted. But that's why we need receipts. And even with paper ballots, it would be better if we had receipts to make sure that the paper ballot is even what you thought it was. You know, when you when you vote in a paper ballot, uh, typically they don't give you a copy of your ballot. So there, there's no way to check that you didn't make a mistake, you know, after the fact in voting. It's like, well, gee, I thought I voted for that person, but did I really? Well, you can't check. Okay. And uh, how do we vote every week with billions of people and have people with that job? Uh, well, I think American Idol is maybe our best example of of, of doing that. They, they hold an election every week uh, with a very large number of people voting. And you know, so technologically it's, it's, uh, it's available. I don't know that I would adopt the American Idol voting software, but we can certainly do it. You know, we, we, can, we can certainly hold you know, worldwide elections with voting software that you know, would be impossible uh, to do uh, manually. Okay, and then there's a question, there's a comment here about open source voting machines are in our election reform. We should consider amending to abolish election machines for hand counted and marked paper ballots as used by a majority of counties. Uh, possibly. That's a that's a policy question that is maybe uh, beyond uh, what I can answer. Now I'm you know I, what I do for my living is I'm a technologist. You know, if you have a software question, I know a lot. Uh, as a politician, I'm brand new. I, I had never run for office before 2020. I never belonged to a political party before I ran for office. You know, I, I had just come, you know, I, I was upset by the, by the 2016 election and decided that I should try to do something. So this is, you know, it's all been a learning experience for me. Uh, I had a, a comment on that, just um, just thinking about like our local election in our state of Pennsylvania. Everyone was so mad about the 2020, you know, count because, uh, you know, we had a, a county that was counting by hand and it took a few days to verify those results. Um, and not that I'm, I'm weighing in on either side of the, the debate or anything. I'm just telling you that was the response that we had in 2020 is that people were very upset with the counties that couldn't count um, the mail-in votes fast enough. Just a consideration too. Yeah, well, and I look at what's happened in Arizona and I'm just appalled at, at what would happen if that was an RCV election. You know, I, 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 think the, I think the count, you know, I think the audit is completely tainted and it would just be you know, it's already chaos, but it would be 10 times the chaos, uh, you know, if you ask them to do an RCV election, these are people who can't even add, you know, it's like, what, what, how would they do, how would they do an RCV, you know, recount? Um, so anyway, um, so I got the question from David of uh, what online software would I recommend for uh, elections within our state party? And the answer is none of them. Per the first slide that I showed, I, I don't trust any of the online software. Um, you know, the, the cynic among us is going to say that that software is operated by the NSA, you know, that, that we're signing up to, for surveillance to, to join that system. And there's a high likelihood that the person thinking that is right because the NSA has a history, you know, the NSA and the CIA and all these agencies have a history of doing that. There's, you know, just recently, it was revealed that the FBI was actually operating the dark net 
that they that they had set up their own dark net and and now have done a whole bunch of huge drug busts because they were actually on the high ground watching all these drug buys go down. So I'm, I'm not suggesting that we form the dark net, but I'm saying, you know, as soon as you give control to somebody else, you know, you're, you're taking a real chance that it's either the Republican Party or the NSA that you're giving your voting system to.